0: You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to see you all here. I'm going to pray as we get uh, to diving into God's Word together here this morning. Father, thank you so much for speaking to us. And God, we want to avail ourselves to you right now. We want to be shaped and molded by your Holy Spirit that we might be conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ, that we might look more like him, we might uh, be more like him, down to our deepest core of our hearts, and we might live more like him. And so, God, we invite your Spirit to come here and to speak to us And to work in us as we do. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, we are continuing in this series called Disciple Equip, and we've been going through this for the last number of weeks, and for many of those weeks we've been uh, sharing with you a different signpost, is what we've been calling them. These are represented in these icons behind me. These are places that we return to on our journey of discipleship over and over again. And we looked uh, at that first signpost, the cross represents follow. Uh, Then we looked at the second one, which is love. The third, which was believe, that's the one that looks like text. And then we looked last week at change, which is the one represented in the water droplet. And this week, we are moving on to the final signpost. It's our second to the last week of Disciple Equip, actually. And, and this uh, image, I want to just take a second, what do you think that that might be? I hope it's pretty clear, but just in case it's not, that's a crown. And, and why would we use a crown as this final symbol? What does it actually symbolize? Well, most of the time when we see a crown, we think about a kingdom, right? And in this case, uh, we're using this image because the kingdom of God is the subject that Jesus talked about more than anything else in His entire earthly ministry. And when He talked about the kingdom of God, He connected it to multiplication. These two things were closely related. And so our signpost for today is multiply. But in order for us to think about this in the way that Jesus thought about it, we, uh, we need to connect the dots between kingdom and and multiplication. So I'd like to actually do that for us just right up front here if you'd go with me quickly on a little journey back to the beginning of Disciple Equip to week one. And I'm guessing that all of you have forgotten everything that we talked about that week. That's okay. Uh, but, but just to jog your memory a little bit, we looked at the story of God that week. This, this image might look familiar if you were around or, or you saw that message and we saw that God created all things, that humankind fell, but that God in his grace has brought redemption through Jesus Christ and new creation has begun. And so looking back at that first uh, first part of the story of God, creation, we see when we look at Genesis 1 that God, when he created humankind, he commissioned humankind and he said, be fruitful and Multiply. And so God uses this word right there at the very beginning of Scripture. Later, after humankind has fallen into sin, He promises, God promises that Jesus would come as a great Redeemer, and He would come through Abraham's family line. And God promises this, and He tells Abraham, He takes him outside, and He says, Come here and look at these stars in the sky. See if you can count them, Abraham. And of course, the whole point of it is that Abraham can't count them. He's like, nope, sorry, can't do it. There's too many to count. And God says to him, so will your descendants be. And so the point is, God's plan, God's purpose has always been one of multiplication. This has been from the beginning of creation, but with Jesus We see this plan finally coming to fruition through the multiplication of disciples. And as disciples of Jesus, we are actually descendants of Abraham, believe it or not. Even if you don't have a single drop of Jewish blood in your body, you are a descendant of Abraham and we have become as innumerable as the stars in the sky, And so redemption has come, new creation has begun, and God's multiplying kingdom is becoming a reality through Jesus becoming the king of the whole world. That is the good news. But notice that I said that it's becoming a reality. And that is because God's purposes to multiply his worldwide family are in process Right now, we often describe this by saying that the kingdom of God is something that is here already, but is not yet complete. So you guys, if you like Venn diagrams, there you go. That's it right there. We are there, and God's kingdom has come, but it is not yet complete. So why am I telling you all this? What, is, what does any of this have to do with where we're going today, and what difference does it make when we're thinking about multiplication? Multiplication. Well, I bet that if I asked right now for anyone in the room to raise their hand if they want to live a meaningless existence and leave nothing behind when they die, that no one would raise their hand, right? And why is that? Because one of our deepest human desires is to have an eternal meaning and purpose to our lives, we want all of the people, all the things that we invest ourselves in to have a lasting impact that goes beyond ourselves, that goes even beyond our own lifetime. And the good news is, the Bible shows, that the, shows us that that desire can actually be fulfilled. It can actually be fulfilled, that we can have eternal meaning and purpose, and, the, and this can happen by living our lives in God's kingdom on earth. And I know that as I talk about that, we even talked about that earlier this year when we went through the series uh, in Matthew's Gospel, which we will come back to in the coming year. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, I, I can't tell you how often I have felt and how often people have told me they have felt that this is an abstract concept and it feels really vague and kind of amorphous and hard to grab Hold of. So, what do we mean when we say participating in God's kingdom on earth? How do we participate in God's kingdom on earth? Well, if you ever want to take an abstract or kind of complex idea and find a place where it's really simplified and distilled down to its uh, most potent form, a good place to find that is in a children's Bible. And the Jesus Storybook Bible says that the kingdom of God is wherever God is king. Pretty simple, right? Actually, I really like that. I actually learned a lot about the kingdom of God through that one statement. But here are three ways that we actively participate in it. How do we participate in God's kingdom on earth? Number one, we live according to his will. This is the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. He says, in his prayer, God in heaven, our Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The point is, is as we pray that, we are supposed to not only be the place where God is reigning as a person, but he is supposed to reign through us. So we live according to his will, we are living and participating in God's kingdom on earth as we live under his reign. Secondly, stewardship and worship. Revelation 5 says that God has made us a kingdom and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Well, as we talk about being a kingdom and priests, that kind of can feel even more abstract or more strange to our ears. But the idea is that the kingdom and priests are offices for stewardship and worship. As as we are a part of this kingdom, we're kind of like little tiny kings and God is our great king and he's placed us here on earth to take care of what he has made. And then as priests, our job is to lead the procession of praise, to, to, to participate in God's creation, worshiping him and pointing to him as it flourishes and functions in the way that he has made it to be. If you want to make that super practical, stewardship and worship play out in the context of uh, how we do our families, how we do our friendships, how we do work. We looked at that when we, when we did our series earlier this year on Made to Flourish. It's how we care for people, how we care for the environment. It's how we do ministry inside and outside of the church. Stewardship and worship is part of how we Uh, participate in God's kingdom on earth. But then the last one, the third one, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today, is that we multiply disciples. And we see this in the Great Commission, as Brandy read for us earlier in the service. In Matthew chapter 28, we also see a Great Commission in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but we're just going to mainly focus on the one in Matthew right now, and it says, and Jesus came to them, And said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore, sorry, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." So Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The point is is that he has come, he has established his kingdom, he has died in our place for our sins, he has risen in triumph over our enemies, and now he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's about to ascend into heaven again as he is saying this, and now he is on his throne ruling and reigning over heaven and earth. And so Jesus is saying, because I have this authority, now you are to go to the ends of the earth, and you are to align the whole world with reality. And what is reality? It's Jesus' gracious rule. And what does that mean when we go to all the earth? He says, all Nations. And so we have to note that in both of the accounts, in the one that we see here in Matthew, also the one that we see in the book of Acts, both of these commissions, Jesus gave uh, this call to include uh, all people, including people who are not like us. Even here in, in Matthew, where it says all nations, The Greek word translated as nations, it's ethnos. It's where we get our word for ethnic. And so Jesus is saying, go to every ethnic people group and share the good news that I am king and I am gracious and kind and forgiving and merciful. And so the shorthand is, go to people from every culture, class, country, and color, And in the Acts account, that's described pretty explicitly. Jesus tells him, he says, you're going to be my witness. And you're going to go from here, from Jerusalem, which is kind of home base. Then you're going to go to Judea, which is kind of the region. Think of that as like the Puget Sound for us. And then he says, now you're going to go to Samaria, which are the enemies of uh, the Jews at the time. And they're across the border. And then he says, go to the ends of the earth. Go to people everywhere, and by the grace of God, this, for the past 100 to 150 years, the evangelical church has, has made immense strides in fulfilling this great commission. We, we've done a great job in many ways. Uh, if you go to the Joshua Project, which is a pretty fascinating website that talks about this, They say that over half of the people groups on planet Earth have been reached, and most of those have been reached in a very meaningful way. So can we just celebrate that? Praise God. It's incredible. But there have been two unintended consequences from this kind of global missions emphasis. And I'd like to share those with you. The first one is that in many ways, we've lost a local emphasis. Because after thousands of years of Christendom, multiplication locally has just kind of become assumed. Many people began to think that because, for example, their family was Christian, that their kids then would be Christian, and therefore multiplication, you know, it seemed to them was just sort of on this autopilot, right? Now, I I don't think that Almost anybody in America probably believes that anymore since less than 50% of the population now belongs to a church, but it has been a common misconception for a really long time, and therefore we've lost uh, the local emphasis. But the second unintended consequence from this church view and this global emphasis on missions is that we've also lost an ethnic emphasis Locally, meaning that while we've funded cross ethnic or cross racial missions across the globe, the U.S. has grown increasingly secular and the church has largely ignored the problem of voluntarily segregated worship and ministry right here at home. And this is due to our racialized history and forced segregation in our past. And as a result, The evangelical church has largely seen the call to go make disciples of all nations as being something that's only done with missionaries and done overseas. That's not Jesus' intention. Disciples of Jesus multiply disciples of Jesus everywhere. And we don't only go to the nations across the globe, we also go across the street we also go across the office, even if right now your office is virtual, right? We also go uh, to, across the racial or the cultural divides that keep us from one another. This includes everyone, those even who have come to our nation from other nations. And so we make disciples of all nations, including our own. And Jesus He said that when we make disciples, He said to baptize them. If we go back to that Matthew 28 passage, He says to baptize them. And this is the initial mark of following Jesus. If you remember last week in our change signpost, we talked about how baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. But Jesus also said that we must also teach them to observe or obey all that He has commanded. That's further discipleship towards spiritual maturity. So that's ongoing change. We don't just need that beginning change. We need the ongoing change. And so a key part of participating in Jesus' kingdom is responding to the fact that as the resurrected Lord, He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and we want everyone everywhere to fall under and in line with this reality. We want to go make disciples. But how do we do it? How do we make disciples? Sometimes this can feel equally abstract to talking about things like the kingdom of God. But let's look. Let's look at how first, how Jesus made disciples. How did Jesus make disciples? Well, He had a public healing and speaking ministry, and he gathered large crowds of people, right? And the Bible calls them disciples. And so, in a sense, that was a huge part of what he was doing. But by the time he had uh, died, and then after his resurrection, this number had shrunk down to about 120 people in Jerusalem. Not a huge lot of people. But as we look at the rest of his ministry... Jesus generally followed the rabbinic model of discipleship. He selected 12 apprentices who He spent around three years with all day, every day. And so if we want to follow Jesus' model of discipleship, church, this week, your assignment, listen carefully, this is your assignment, go out and select 12 apprentices And then the 12 of them and you, you come together, you look at your calendars, you clear your schedule for the next three years, and you spend all day every day with each other. And I already heard some laughs. Okay, good. You're getting the point, right? Is that what we're we're supposed to do? Is that really what the model of discipleship is that we're supposed to follow? Is that even what the apostles did? Well, we have to look at the rest of the New Testament to find the answer to that. Once Jesus commissioned his disciples in Matthew 28, he ascended into heaven, he gave them his Holy Spirit, and then they went from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, just like they were commanded to do. They didn't find 12 apprentices. And so while Jesus' methods for disciple making were wonderful, they were great. We don't see anyone else employ it for the rest of Scripture. In fact, the word disciple doesn't even appear after the book of Acts. Okay, well, what then? How did the apostles then make disciples? Well, they were, as we just said, they were sent as witnesses to the places where the good news about Jesus had not yet come, so that where the gospel had not yet spread, had not yet been heard, and they proclaimed it. And if it was received, which we have to put an if before that because a lot of times it wasn't, if it was received, they planted new churches there. Then what did they do? Then they appointed qualified leaders to oversee and care for the church, to, to do that work of ongoing maturing and, and discipleship. And then those churches multiplied, and they sent people to plant more churches. And so it's just this beautiful life cycle that we are still a part of today. And so after Jesus, the method of multiplying disciples in the New Testament is through the church. And we follow the same pattern today. We, we send, we plant, we appoint and we multiply. And I got to probably think of a different word for one of those, because if you use that as an acronym, it's SPAM. Uh, and I, I didn't think you guys would kind of get, you know, hang on to that very well today. We'll find that sometime. Uh, but, but that means that the whole church is to work together to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. So that's rather than merely doing the work of discipleship as individuals. See, we want to be collectively doing the work of discipleship as a disciple making church, which this this can be a huge paradigm shift for some people. So many of us think that if we are to do the work of discipleship, we have to essentially, you know, have some sort of a mentorship kind of relationship with someone. Sometimes people think that they have to go get their 12 apprentices. Mentorship is good. It's a wonderful thing. But it's not all that there is to discipleship, and it's not all that there is to the disciple making church. I'll give you an example. For those of you who are parents As Brandy told us earlier, you get to disciple your kids. That's amazing. For others who don't have children, you can do this with other people that you have relationships with. You can do this with your roommates. You guys can disciple each other. You can do this with people on your team at work, presuming that, you know, you don't get fired for it or something. (laughs) Uh, You you can do this with each other at work. You can do this with your friends at school. Jesus… Uh, made disciples by praying with them, by teaching them the Scriptures, by serving them and investing in their lives. And in the same way, the church is meant to be this community whom we share life with in the kingdom of God. And as we do, disciples are multiplied. And so, Christian, I'm wondering, does that kind of lift a little bit of the load of discipleship off of your shoulders? I hope it does. Because if you've been thinking about it myopically and like you have to do it all, you have to be this one-stop shop for discipleship, well, I hope that opens and expands your view to see that it's much bigger, that you are absolutely essential, but you are not alone, that we get to do this together. But another problem that I want to address so often, is that so often people think that they don't have time for discipleship. I've actually had a number of conversations about this with people recently. I think that time is the biggest barrier to multiplying disciples, hands down, in our culture. And, and, and sometimes people feel like, I don't have time to either be a disciple or to make disciples, and, and there may actually be some truth to that. If that's how you feel, uh, it, it may be true, but it may not be for a good reason. And here's what I mean. We live in the busiest and most fast-paced culture in the history of the world. Amen? We don't do anything Slow. I mean, we can't even drive slow. I can't even drive down 35th at 25 miles per hour without losing my mind, amen? So we're we, we so used to fast, fast, more, more, that now burnout, fatigue, anxiety, chaos, they're in us and they're all around us all the time. And to make matters worse, we live in the information age where information is being multiplied at an incomprehensible rate. There is no possible way we can digest even the day's news every day. And on top of that, we are overscheduled. We pack things in as though we are not human beings and try to do more than what we were made to do. And so what's the result? We try to escape because we're so overwhelmed. We're like, this is too much. I got to get out. And so then we try to escape by self-medicating with food and with alcohol and entertainment and lust. And it doesn't make us any less exhausted. It only makes matters worse. And so then we go through this Discipleship series, right? And I feel kind of like this guy who's giving you a message every week that you just don't want to hear because you're like, I don't have any more space in my life for more stuff. Don't give me more for my task list. This is burdening me. And yet, I would propose that in light of our purpose as human beings and as followers of Jesus, That we don't have time not to make disciples. If we don't feel like we have time, I I would just challenge all of us, including me, including myself, to take a closer look at how we spend our time. Are we investing our time into things that will truly last? John Piper says rightly that one of the great uses of social media will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Pretty convicting. I think he's right. That's one example of what I'm talking about. Is there some binge watching or phone scrolling or information consuming in your life that needs to just get cut out altogether. Some of you, as I'm talking about that, you're thinking, okay, I, I've, I've worked on my calendar. I've been really intentional about how I spend my time. I think a lot about this, and so what am I going to do if I don't feel like I have enough time for discipleship? And, and there are many people here who are probably like that, and I would say, perhaps you are spending your time on the right things, but there's just too much of it. If that's the case, the answer is to come back to reality that you are a human being and you have limits. This is one of the lessons that God has to teach me over and over and over again. I'm always getting myself in to too much stuff. God has made you as a human being. You are not omniscient, you are not omnipresent. You have limits, and that's good for you. You're not God. And you can't do everything, and so perhaps it's, it's cutting back on some of those busy things, that, even when those are good things, in order that you can be healthier as a human being, but also more intentional about discipleship. There's one more thing that I want to dig into as we uh, think about feeling uh, like we don't have enough time. I would like to propose... That you and I, as disciples of Jesus, do not have a discipleship on-off switch, right? It, it, that that uh, you, you don't stop being a follower of Jesus at any point in time. Even, friends, when you're at work and you're handing in those TPS reports, you know what I'm saying? And you don't look a lot like a follower of Jesus sometimes in those moments. <laughs> but, but it's even in those moments, you are still you, You still belong to Jesus. You're still His follower. You don't stop being a follower of Jesus when, you know, you're helping coach your kid's soccer team or when you're having dinner with friends. You're still a Christian. And in fact, Jesus' expectation is not just that we surrender everything to Him, including our calendars, and we carve out that time for intentional discipleship like worshiping here and and living in community and practicing the disciplines and all these things. But Jesus also expects that you would live with intention everywhere that you go. Everywhere. Fun fact, when Jesus said, go make disciples, that word go could be translated as you go. Meaning, as you go about your life. Make disciples. So, this means that in many cases, the greatest need that we have is to just simply look at our lives differently, to look at our our experiences, look at where we're investing ourselves with fresh eyes and see how God is giving us opportunities every single day to turn regular moments into discipleship moments. I'll give you an example. I was actually just talking with someone this week, and I've had this conversation several times throughout this this sermon series uh, with parents of of little children, and they'll often tell me things like, I just can't make quiet time with the Lord. It just doesn't happen. By the time my kids are in bed, I collapse in my bed. And then I wake up and it's 5 a.m. and they're sitting on my face. And, and what am I supposed to do? I don't have quiet time. And that's true. Amen, parents? That's just reality. That's real life. So if we're talking about real life, then let's just get real. I think part of real life with little kids is, is reading them, you know, Goodnight Moon and Dr. Seuss books at bedtime, Right? So how about, instead of thinking that you've got to just get this like magical, mythical, quiet time that's not going to happen in your life stage, what about if you just think about the times that you have with your kids differently? What about if you include with Dr. Seuss and Goodnight Moon, what if you also include some time, you know, in, in the Jesus Storybook Bible? Sometimes when they're, sorry, I'm going to drink this, I'm sitting here with my water Sometimes when, you know, when, our, when our kids are really little, trying to read to them at bedtime, it, it just turns into like an all-out war with a toddler, so I get that, and that's going to happen not just with Cat in the Hat, it'll happen with the Jesus Storybook Bible too, and that's normal, but I'm telling you that when my kids were really little, that time of reading to them the Bible was a lifeline for me. It sustained me. It was all the time that I got in the Bible in that season of life. And now as our kids got older, we actually moved our uh, time in the Bible and in family worship to uh, dinner time. And you know, as our kids got older, they graduated from the Jesus Storybook Bible to more mature translations of the Bible. And now we kind of all read regular translations. But we've deliberately, as a family, we've integrated the disciplines into our life together rather than only seeing them as things that we get to do on our own. And we disciple our kids in the process. It's wonderful. We all need it. We all disciple each other. Even Brandy was talking earlier about how she's learning from these kids who she's pouring into in youth ministry. We all know that as parents, that's true for us too. We can learn from anyone. Now, as, I've gotten old, as our kids have gotten older, I've really enjoyed increasing my time uh, in personal devotions and, and all of that kind of thing, but there are life stages, like time with the littles at home, where you just have to take what you can get, and that is okay. And so we need to have fresh eyes to see our lives and see where are these opportunities to turn moments into discipleship moments, I'll give you some other examples. What about when you're grabbing beers with your buddy, or you're you know helping someone on a house project, or you're chaperoning the kids on their school field trip, or whatever? What if you include in those times conversations about what God is teaching you? What if what if? Uh, You even ask the person, people that are with you, the question, what is one thing that God is teaching you right now? I think it's a great question to spark a discipleship conversation. And if you're, of course, if you're with Christians and you're asking those kinds of questions, you could even pray afterwards. And now you've turned a regular moment into a discipleship moment, which we know as disciples is really every moment. So maybe Maybe you do need to reevaluate your calendar. Maybe you do need to surrender your calendar to Jesus and allow Him to dictate how you're spending your time. But perhaps you've also, maybe you've already done that. And if that's the case, maybe you just need to think bigger as to what constitutes discipleship. That, it, that it's not just, you know, scheduling a coffee meeting, but it's, it's, it's sharing life. I would like to close now by reflecting on how other people have discipled you and then close with the story of Paul. So let's just ask this question How has the church discipled you? If we're saying that the church is how disciples, uh, who makes disciples? let's think about how has the church had an impact on your own life? How has the church discipled you? What what had to happen in order for you to be here today, even if you're wherever you're at on your journey, even if you're just now getting exposed to who Jesus is for the first time? What had to happen? Well, the apostles had to be faithful to the Great Commission, Right? That had to happen for you to be here today. Then the gospel had to go to the ends of the earth, and and it has. And then for thousands of years, one person told another person about Jesus, and that person repented, they put their trust in him, and then the church baptized them. And the church taught them, discipled them, taught them how to follow Jesus, and that happened one Person at a time until you arrived at the place where you are at today, where you are at on wherever you are at on this journey of following Jesus. And so, if you're a Christian, God in His grace, He pursued you through other people, through all of that history. If you're not a Christian, we hope and our prayer even this morning was that you would meet Jesus and that you would have an encounter with him today. If you don't know him, if you've got questions, concerns, objections to Christianity, we want to be a safe place for you to dialogue about those things. So come and grab me or another leader after service. We would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. But for those of you who are Christians, God pursued you through other people being faithful to the Great Commission. Think about that. Think about who those people are. Think about how you wouldn't be here without them. Who has discipled you? Was it a parent? Was it one of your teachers? Was it a coach on a team that you were a part of? A pastor? Was it a child, maybe one of your own children? That often happens, right? Especially with uh, adult children, they get to disciple their parents. How about a friend? Was there a friend who has poured into you and invested themselves into you? Or a coworker, or a neighbor? Who has discipled you? I'm guessing if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, that list is long. There are many people who have invested themselves into you. How can that today be an inspiration for you to seek to participate in the work of multiplying more disciples? Just as God uh, put you in someone else's life so that they could disciple you, is there someone who God has put into your life so that you can participate in discipling them? Maybe it's a parent of yours, maybe it is a teacher or a coach, or a pastor, or one of your own children, or a, or a friend, or a coworker, or a neighbor. Jesus has established His kingdom on earth, so we participate in His kingdom, and we multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. And you see, our deepest human longing to have this eternal, transcendent meaning and purpose in our lives... It has been made possible through Jesus coming to inaugurate his kingdom, to die in our place for our sins, to rise and triumph over our enemies, to ascend into heaven where he can rule and and, and to send his spirit to us so that we can now bear witness about him. And the Apostle Paul, he's a great example of this. The Apostle Paul, when we we first are introduced to him in Scripture, he's actually presented as an enemy of Christianity. He's executing Christians or approving of their execution. He's having them in prison. He's persecuting them. And it says in the book of Acts uh, that that he's this enemy of Jesus. It says, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord." And, and he's, he's approved of the execution of Stephen and some of the early leaders in the church. And after all of that has taken place, he's now traveling to Damascus. He's on this road, and this light from heaven appears, and it shines down on Saul, and he is immediately blinded, and he falls down onto the ground. And he realizes that what has just happened to him is he has just encountered the risen Jesus on the road. And Jesus says to him, he says, why are you persecuting me? Of course, we go, hold on, Paul's persecuting the church. Yeah. Jesus is saying, that's my body. That's my bride. If you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. And Saul is, is, is on the ground. He's recognizing, oh my gosh, I've been on the wrong team this whole time. And he switches teams, but he's still blind, and he goes uh, to Damascus, and God sends another Christian guy there, a guy named Ananias, to pray for him, and it says that scales fell from his eyes. And the immediate thing that he does after he's no longer blind is he goes and he gets baptized. And then he eats because he's probably really hungry. I don't know. I guess he hasn't been eating while he's blind or something like that. And then immediately after that, he goes to the synagogues to preach the gospel that the king and savior of the world is the son of God and his name is Jesus Christ. And then Saul, who we now better know as, know as uh, Paul, he then spends the rest of his whole life doing this. He's been transformed. He travels throughout the whole Middle East and Southern Europe. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's introducing people to this Jesus who he met on that road. And his uh, his life is a direct answer to Jesus' command in Acts 1.8. That he, Paul, is Jesus' witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But man is this hard work. This is such hard work, and it's not just because he's experiencing this spiritual opposition and political opposition, which he most certainly was, but it was also because Paul was himself a Jew born into this Greco-Roman world. But Paul, as a Jew, he, he has to adapt as he's sharing and spreading the gospel. He has to lay down his cultural preferences. He has to lay down his tradition. He has to take up his cross in order to share the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To the Greeks, I became a Greek in order to win the Greeks. I have become all things to all people that by all means i might save some and i do it all for the sake of the gospel that i may share with them in its blessings paul adapts himself and his message to the people who he encounters because he's just so eager to share the blessings that god has given to him and as the as he does the news, it spreads like wildfire, and Paul then multiplies his ministry. And a huge part of how Paul does that is he teaches others who teach others to teach others. He disciples others to disciple others who disciple others. In fact, here's what he tells to Timothy. He says, So you, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be competent to teach others as well. Paul is, in so far as we know, he, he was a single guy, he had no wife, he had no kids. And yet he regularly talks to guys like Timothy. He says, my child. He talks to them like they're his kids. He disciples them to disciple others who disciple others. Because you see, disciples are never dead ends. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. It doesn't matter if you have kids or no kids. Disciples are never dead ends. And Paul found his meaning and purpose first in trying to destroy Christianity until he met Jesus and everything changed and he found a new purpose. His new purpose was to multiply disciples and he chose to do that work of discipleship first through spreading the good news about Jesus and then through teaching other leaders and churches to do it. And he knew that because the Jesus that he encountered was not only alive, but that he was the Lord of heaven and earth. Paul knew that his legacy wouldn't just be productive or rewarding in this life, but also in the one to come. He would have lasting, eternal impact. And like Paul, no matter who you and I are, no matter where we have come from, we are all invited into this same calling, this this same command to go and make disciples. What a joy that is. Let me pray and we'll respond. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to redeem us, for sending your spirit to fill us and to, to empower us for this work of multiplying disciples. And God, we, we just pr- profess, we, we, we confess that we need your help in that process. So often we fill our lives with too much stuff. We fill it with things that are not good for us. So so often we feel like we just don't have the time. So often we cannot figure out what it looks like for us to cross cultural, ethnic, relational barriers in order to reach out to other people in your name. And so God, I pray that as we respond to you right now, that you would solidify this desire in our hearts to, to, to have this fulfilled meaning and purpose in you and in what you have commissioned us to do through Jesus. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.